Hello and welcome to this retrospective episode of Nothing Ventured, where we're going to be taking a little look at all of the guests we've had on the last season from across the pond. In this episode, you're going to hear from Adam Bezvenik, founder at Looking Glass Capital, uh, Brett Martin, VC at Charge Ventures, Michael Palank, uh, general partner at Mac Venture Capital, Daniel Glazer, managing partner of the London office of WSGR, and Zeka Len, GP at Responsibly Ventures. Uh, we learn a lot from our friends from across the Atlantic, and I hope you do too. It's interesting that you said it wasn't a cool thing to do back then. And and uh, kind of, you know, I was reading, in fact, you know, you're talking about Twitter earlier. I was reading something that you said uh, just yesterday, I think, right? And you said the best part of the current venture funding market is that it has provided a tremendous amount of clarity. So I think for our UK listeners, it'd be really cool to understand what is the current state of play in the venture kind of ecosystem, certainly in the US, and, and how you might see that. Uh, kind of globally, if, if if at all. And, you know, what is that clarity that has been brought and, and what are the implications of that? Sure. So I think just quickly on where I think the current market sits, the, I think the pre-seed and seed market is still you know, as robust and as, as crowded as ever. Um, I think you've also started to see some later stage firms downshift to write more seed checks um, because they can get close to the same amount of ownership as a series a investment with putting a lot less capital at risk. And so you've started to see some inflated seed rounds. I saw one person, another solo GP yesterday tweet that she hadn't seen a seed round under $7 million in the last, you know, several weeks, which that that seems like a lot of money for a seed, but perhaps these rounds are just getting inflated because you have, you know, an influx of later stage capital coming in to jam, sort of jam things in. Um, but that market has not, in my opinion, hasn't really gotten much more quiet um, compared to some of the other later stages over the last you know, six, eight, 10 months. Um, what I have found at that stage, though, is at least for me, I'm seeing a much higher um, signal to noise ratio. And by that, I mean the quality of companies related to the quantity is is much better. I just think the bar for starting a company right now is exceptionally high. Um and if you were a fly-by-night founder or you were going to, you know, see if you could raise a little bit of money and then quit your job based on VCs funding your idea or your side hustle, um, like that just doesn't really happen right now the way it did in 2021. And so um, I'm seeing a lot more ideas and products pressure tested by founders before they actually go out to raise capital, which is, you know, which is refreshing to me and, you know, ultimately beneficial for investors to have something that feels even just a touch de-risked compared to something that's, you know, literally just an idea. Um, though certainly I still will fund those two for the right the right team and the right market. Um, I think Series A rounds are getting done, but you need to be an exceptionally strong company and exceptionally strong team to get those rounds done at valuations that um, you and your existing investors are, are happy with. Um, and then Series B and Series C rounds, I think, are probably the most tricky right now. Yeah. Sort of that growth stage deal where you, know, you probably raised an overinflated Series A or Series B in 21 or you know, maybe early 22. Now you're in market and no one is willing to pay the price that you raised the last round at, let alone an up round, because the last two rounds were probably over overvalued significantly. And then the later stage stuff, 
you know, those companies might be taking down rounds, but like there's still going to be a, you know, quote unquote flight to quality yeah. to, to winners or perceived winners. Very similar to what we saw at the beginning of COVID um, where, you know, pre-seed and seed still remained relatively active because people were comfortable deploying small checks over Zoom and it, it felt, you know, a lot less risky. And then series A through C was basically like a no man's land. It was carnage, and then yeah. series D and later just got, you know, flooded with capital, right? Because people were like, well, I can, it's, it's less about a person bet at this stage. I can just, I can, I probably have been tracking this company for a while already. I probably already have a relationship with the entrepreneur and let me just look at the latest numbers and I'm just running stuff in Excel and getting comfort with that. And so I don't necessarily need to see this person face to face. Um, I think that that dynamic has emerged for different reasons now. Um, but, but I think that's a similar sort of barbell dynamic that we're seeing in the market, similar to sort of March, April, May of, of 2020. And I think that's really interesting. And you're the first person I've heard talk about it in terms of what we saw in 2020. But actually, that, that's exactly what we saw in 2020, as you as you cor correctly point out. Like it was, you know, I think there were there, there were ideas that weren't getting funded. There were decent pre-seed businesses which had legs, which, you know, were lower risk and therefore could get funded. But it was that it was that mid-range of seed series A where like, you know, product market fit was maybe there, maybe just about there, but hard to take that hard bet and deploy a large amount of capital. Obviously, post that, You've got you know much more me metric you know m many more metrics or traction to uh, to hang your hat on. So I, I think that made life a lot easier. So yeah, that's a that's a very very interesting sort of juxtaposition. I'd also be interested to understand from your perspective. Do you think we've reverted to where we were back in 2011, 2012, 13 when you were with Lowercase, uh, as compared to the last ten years? Like is that is that the 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 right sort of uh, analysis, or or is this a new era altogether, and we just got to treat it you know as a complete different um uh, a, a different time yeah, i think from a valuation perspective i think we're retreating closer to 2014 through 2016 mm -hmm. which is when i was at deep fork um fred wilson put out a post shortly after the start of the year where he said surviving in 2023 is thriving and he called out new sort of valuation ranges for pre-seed seed a and 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 b i think yeah and and I think Fred called out like 2015 as sort of the the analog to what when these types of deals would get done. I still see things that are out of you know slightly above that in terms of price at the pre-seed and seed stage, but I largely think we've reverted back to some time around there where you know raising a million dollar pre-seed round is getting done at you know four to six post. Right, you're giving up somewhere between 16 and 25 percent of the company for a million dollars. A three million dollar seed round is probably at somewhere between, you know, 10 to 15 post. Mm. Um, you know, four million. You know, I, I fortunately I've had a lot of companies from Fund One. I've had seven companies from Fund One raise priced equity rounds in the last four months. Um, one was uh, a company called Hone, which I mentioned in the primer, which is doing very very well and is well beyond that well beyond that from a seed or seed range, but the other six were all raising between three and $5 million. And they're all largely giving up somewhere between 18 and 25% dilution. Wow. Yeah. So they're all raising somewhere between, you know, four, 15 to 20 million post post money valuations for three to $5 million rounds. Um, and some of these businesses are 
only a couple months old, but there's tons of momentum around them. Some of these businesses are 15 months old and they've just hit a you know an inflection point. Um, but largely, I think this is a that's a valuation range and a dilution range that we saw, you know, certainly pre-COVID and probably closer to the 2016, 2017 range mm. uh, from a timing, from a timing perspective. You know, what advice do you give to or can you give to founders? to find the right investor at pre-seed? Like, and I don't mean about who has a cash, who has a check, but I mean, what should they be looking for from their investor, from their VC at that pre-seed level? What are the most important things that you guys bring to the table? Okay, I think there's two things here. One is something that is still poorly understood by founders, I think, which is that they think that they need to convince investors of the value of what they're doing when instead you actually just need to find the investors who already believe in what you're doing and make that connection right so like you know if you don't have a connection if the investor is skeptical you know doesn't it doesn't really get it right or is not that interested in it right you you know we've all experienced that uh you know pitching someone and having them just like it's obvious that they don't want to be there it's obvious that they're just like this is the meeting on their schedule they're you know filling time right like the goal is not to convince that person but rather identify that they are not interested quickly and then move them to path and drive that to conclusion as quickly as possible. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs waste a lot of time pitching because entrepreneur because uh, VCs they don't want to say no, right? It's the, to their advantage to just keep the optionality in in case something does change or there's some other signal that says that they should invest, right? So you should be driving conclusions to no as quickly as possible, and then filling the top of the funnel and finding the person who's feels that problem acutely they you know they've been looking for you or they have some personal resonance with your story and then it's going to click it's going to move very fast once you do that right and so um that's what you should be looking for as a pre-seed uh you know founder looking for pre-seed and then the second reason thing is you know why pre-seed why take a pre-seed investor as opposed to you know a big seed investor or a multi-stage fund and it's you know because you want someone who's aligned with you, right? Like, you know, and this is maybe another reason, you know, I'm pitching my book here, but like why you would want to work with like an insurgent fund rather than an established fund is because, you know, if you're a church ventures, you need all your investments to work, right? I need to raise my next fund and I can't have companies, you know, that have quick zeros. I need, you know, I need it to work out. So I'm not going to give up on you. Unlike a big multi-stage fund where, you know, they already have a big established, uh, you know, they have an established reputation and, you know, their whole goal is if something's not going to work out, they want to cut beta on it as quickly as possible to move on to the next thing, whereas I don't have that luxury. Um, so I think finding funds that are aligned with you and truly are on the sa same page need to make it work. Like that's your advantage. Well, firstly, you are more than welcome to pitch your own book. That's not, not a problem on this podcast at all. Uh, one of the things I love there, and, and it's something that it's been really uh, interesting to have learned over the last uh, couple of years, uh, is, you know, getting to know as quickly as possible, right? Getting to that know. And in fact, like last year when I was looking to raise for one of my businesses, I spent six months sort of, you know, traipsing around looking uh, looking for that capital. And it became really, really apparent, like who was interested, who wasn't in interested exactly as you said. Uh, but the most, you know, the most important thing for me was, can I get to that no within a day or two days? Because then I can just 
cut my losses, move on to the next one. The worst thing is when you have people stringing you along for three weeks, one month, you know, saying, yeah, we're looking at it, we'll decide, you know, we'll come back to you. And then ultimately it gets to a no anyway. Uh, and in fact, actually one of one of the founders that I worked with, um, I took her to a, a, a VC fund. She met, you know, the entire team, met two partners, and then, you know, was told uh, ultimately, actually, you know, we're not bullish on this space or we, we, we don't have conviction that there is something uh, to be done here. And it was like, well, you know, you, you knew you weren't going to invest early on. Why didn't you just say that, you know, straight from the bat? And I, and I think... You know, I think that's uh, that's that's something that I think founders assume that once they get into the meetings of the VCs, that's always going to progress to a yes. But the reality is, it may be exactly as you say that they are just looking to understand the space better or get more uh, data or more information about what's going on, and ultimately, you know, they, they may actually end up stringing out the founder because they have the ability to do that. The founder, unfortunately, does not. They need the money in the bank, you know, in the next month, two months. Um, so I think getting to know is is a, is a really important thing, a really important lesson that I think founders need to learn, um, you know, really quickly. Um, let's, let's talk about data and digital literacy uh, because, you know, that's kind of what you teach, I understand, at, at Columbia Business School. Why is it critical to be teaching that MBA today and and is that different from what it was maybe five or ten years ago yeah so i think there's two things one is you know why is digital literacy important it's because tech you know so tech is in the world software is in the world right so like every industry is now tech tech is mainstream if you're trying to build something new and you know growth oriented then you need to understand tech that's pretty obvious right the second is around data and i um i'll explain it because i was interviewing tas one year and i looked up and i was speaking to this smart young woman and she had uh taking she was an mba and had a finance background but she was taking um coding classes at, at, at columbia intro to python and and i was asking her i said you know why, why are you doing this uh, given that she wanted to enter VC and, and she said, <laughs> she said to me, she said, I think that Python is to my generation as Excel yeah. was to yours. <laughs> and <laughs> I had to step back. Cause I was like, first off, I was like, man, I'm getting old. <laughs> but secondly, I was thinking, you know, I thought that was pretty smart. I was like, you know, the future of data, you know, the, what, what, the way we used to manipulate data when I was right out of college was in Excel. And I think that this next generation is gonna use code to be able to manipulate data in a much more powerful way uh, than, than we could. And so I think that's why data analytics is important, right? You know, historically, um, being a leader was all about, you know, having a good gut, having a good intuition. And nowadays it's, you, you know, you, we all, everyone wants a, and as an investor, right, we want data-driven CEOs. Um, and so, you know, being able to be fluent with data is, is important. And um, I will say that said, even though I teach data analytics and machine learning, I think that people are, you know, the pendulum always swings. And so now I think a lot of people think that being a data-driven leader means, I think they sometimes confuse it with painting by numbers. Yeah. So they think, oh, well, I don't have to have any opinions. I just have to look at the data and it'll tell me what to do. And I want to be clear that that is not actually that useful. You, you know, the, the 
oftentimes you don't have data and oftentimes the logic and intuition is actually the fastest way of making a decision. And so a lot of times you're, you know, you use data when you can, but you don't always have data. So I still think there's value in both. Um, but you know, why not have the data tool in your tool set? Uh, what can you take away from, from the way Hollywood works into venture or, or indeed not take away? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, whether you're building a company or, you know, um, creating a movie or a TV show, it, it does take a village. You know, you, you watch the end of a movie and you see credits that go on for 10 minutes and the hundreds, if not thousands of people that were required to bring this movie to your screen. In the same way, you know, if you were to, if, if companies had a credit sequence post IPO, <laughs> it'd probably be even longer, right? Yeah. All the people that were involved from the very first day to the IPO, to get this company to where it was, you know, it does take a village. So at a very general level, there's that similarity. Um, as we talked about earlier, you know, in Hollywood, the center of the universe are artists. They are the ones whose creations fuel the whole industry. You know, without them, talent agents don't have a job. Studio executives don't have a job. Truly, artists are the center of the Hollywood universe. And I think in the exact same way, you know, entrepreneurs in our world are the center of the universe. And everyone is in service of the entrepreneur, um, just as in, as in Hollywood, everyone's in service of the artist. And I think you can get into trouble if you think you're more important than the artist in Hollywood or more important than the entrepreneur in um, in tech. And, you know, that was, I saw that, that sort of comp very early and clearly when I became a VC. I'm like, oh, I, I know this job. I, I did this job as a talent agent. And at seed stage VC, um, you know, most of our calculus in, in deciding if we should invest in a company centers around our determination of the quality of the founding team and the entrepreneurs. Um, and often at seed, certainly pre-seed, there, there are limited data points to go off of. And it's way more subjective than objective, way more art than science in making this determination. Do we think this person or this team, you know, is great and can build a world-changing company? In the same way where I would go to the Sundance Film Festival back in 2005 and, you know, you go see this kind of art film and this person has like a five minute role and you're trying to determine, you know, can this person become a global movie star from this little seedling of a performance that I saw? Like very limited data points. And then you go meet with them, you have coffee with the artist, you see the kind of person what they are and their, their career ambitions and just how they see the world and you're trying to determine, you know, from just limited data, you know, can this person, can I turn this person or help turn this person into someone huge? That, that famous star quality kind of aspect, right? The star quality aspect, you know? And and so that's very similar in these two worlds. And then at least in terms of VC and talent agents, like the competitive nature. So, okay, I determined that this person does have least in my opinion, what it takes. Well, I'm probably not the only one. There's probably someone at three other agencies that feel the same way. And now we're all competing to sign this artist. And I'm selling myself now. The tables have turned. And like, here's why you should sign with me. Here's how I would help build your career. Here's why I'm the right person for you. Well, guess what? That happens all the time in, in the VC world where we're selling ourselves. I mean, capital is essentially a commodity. And you know, founders, if they're great, often have uh, options when choosing their VCs. And it's, it's you know, why should I choose you? And uh, and so that that was very similar to me. Um, 
And uh, and so yeah, it, it's I wouldn't say it's a tried and true path from being Hollywood agent to to venture capitalist, but certainly there are, there are stories there of people that have walked that path. And you know, Mike Ovitz famously helped uh, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz sort mm. of think through the structure and strategy of Andreessen Horowitz in the early days. And what they pursued was a very different model than was typical at the time in VC, just as when Mike Ovitz started CIA um, in the late 70s, it was a very different model than what was traditional in the Hollywood agency space at the time. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's a not, not a typical path. And I think some entrepreneurs, when they look at my LinkedIn, may say, oh, wait, why am I talking to you? You used to, you know, <laughs> work with Horace Whitaker and Will Smith and these people. And I'm like, well, actually, I just wanted to give them an abbreviated version of this story. And like, oh, yeah, yeah, there are, there are similarities. I so mean, I'm very proud of this path I followed. I mean, and, and it's not just similarities. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, both LPs as well as angels now. So if I think about, you know, you talked about Serena Ventures being involved in, in, in one of, you know, invested in one of the, the portfolio companies. Now, obviously, Serena's a, a, an athlete, like one of my good friends over here is building a platform so that more athletes can, can uh, invest in, um, uh, in venture style deals. But I would imagine that, you know, to your point, movie stars, and you, you talked about Will Smith, you know, uh, they have capital behind them. A lot of them want to do good. They want to, you know, make a difference in the world. They are often very outspoken people, right? With uh, with a lot of purpose behind them, often from quite humble backgrounds as well. Um, and I would imagine that, you know, again, in terms of the ecosystem in, in LA and just tying those two things together, you know, that, that leads to potentially an abundance of potential partners, of advocates, of LPs, of funders, of investors, angels, et cetera, that come out of that ecosystem that you know want to do something good with their you know with their capital you know having having you know built it up over many years and, and doing many movies um and presumably that's uh, you know that's really positive as well because you know the other thing i guess about hollywood at least you know from the outside looking in is that otherwise it's quite a closed shop whereas tech tends to be you know tends to express itself as being a very open and democratized kind of ecosystem Albeit that some people would argue venture is less uh, democratized, maybe than than you know the tech uh, ventures that they're funding. But um, from your perspective, what are the trigger points for a UK firm looking to expand into the US, and when should they consider getting the right structure in place, yeah. and whether that should be you know a Topco flip to the US, which you know we've talked about previously uh, uh, between ourselves as well, a subsidiary or or something else altogether. I mean, what 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 are the triggers, and then what is most appropriate at what time? Sure. So. The bright red line of when you need to set up a proper structure in the US typically is when you're hiring your first US em employees. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of things that you can do um, with respect to the US as a UK company that you don't need any particular structure for. For example, selling in remotely to US companies, unless you're selling into certain, uh, unless you're selling into certain uh, US government entities or the military, you generally can sell into the US straight through your UK company directly. Um, Hiring contractors in the U.S. You don't need an entity to hire contractors in the U.S. Um, hiring employees through an employer record service, you don't need to create a structure to do that, right? Um, going to meetings, uh, generally ra ra raising money, uh, attending conferences, negotiating contracts, all that stuff. You can go to the U.S. You don't necessarily need a need a visa for, and you don't you don't need a company. But the bright red line of when you would want to create the company is when, when you're hiring your own em employees. In other yeah. words, not through an employer of record, not through a contractor arrangement, but your own proper 
employees um, because basically for three reasons, tax, liability, Im 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 employment law. In other words, you don't want to create a taxable presence of your UK company in the US. Mm -hmm. You don't want to end up with a direct line of liability to the deep pockets of the UK company from the US. And you don't want the ambiguity of UK employment rules and US employment rules with a UK employer and a US employee in short, right? Um, but it's going to be a subsidiary, right? Yeah. As, as I often say, our, our advice on this is, is, a, is a tweetable piece of advice, which is that the, 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 um, the decision to create a U.S. subsidiary mm -hmm. is operational and commercial driven. The decision to create a U.S. parent company is solely investor driven. Yeah. Right? In, other words, in other words, to the extent that you need a U.S. company, pretty much everything that you want to do in the U.S., you can do through a U.S. sub. Right. Typically, by the way, wholly owned Delaware Corporation yeah. um, owned by the uh, by the UK company, with the exception of and this is the, the Delaware flip point that you alluded to. If you are raising typically from early stage U.S. investors, most often seed, sometimes a almost never B anymore. Mm -hmm. um, if you're raising from certain early stage U.S. investors, uh, some of those U.S. investors will not pull the trigger and invest in the company unless it agrees to become a Delaware parent company, yeah. right? And that's, that's the so-called Delaware flip. In other words, a share-for-share -share exchange between the UK Limited and a new Delaware corporation that results in a Delaware parent company with a wholly owned UK subsidiary. By the way, why Delaware? The headline, Delaware reduces friction. Um, you have to incorporate your, you incorporate a company in one of the 50 states in the U.S. There's no mm -hmm. such thing as a national, national company, yeah. right? We, we, all, we all use it with shorthand, U.S. company, and that's fine. But technically, it's a company that's incorporated in one of the 50 states. And again, Delaware reduces friction. Long ago, it established itself as the go-to state for incorporation yeah. in, the, in the U.S. I mean, the thing that strikes me, because you, know, you said it's typically kind of that early stage. If you're seeking early stage investment, that's where a, a top code flip might be required. But essentially, there is no real reason for that other than simplicity for the investor. Because to your point, if they don't require it at A or, or certainly at B, then it can't be that there is something that is stopping an investor from investing in a UK company. It's just friction, right? Or it's just, sorry, simplicity on their side, uh, uh, ease of, of reference there, that, you know, they're able to kind of navigate that sort of situation yeah. much easier than, than um, you know, if, if, it's a, if it's a US company. So it, it doesn't seem like there is an actual, any any purpose to doing a US Hopco flip other than to satisfy investors, right? So let's... Um Let's break that down a, a little sure. bit, right? So first of all, I, I would say what we're seeing, especially post-COVID, uh, post, post -COVID, mm -hmm. is if you're looking to raise a U.S.-led seed round, and when I say U.S.-led, I mean investors who are based in the States who do not have a London office, yep. okay? So I, what we're seeing is usually about 75 to 80% chance that that, that that VC at seed would require a flip in order to pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. um, by the time you get to Series A, it's down to about 20 to 25%. I mean, it, it, and that's what's dropped materially, I think, over the course of the, the pandemic. And, and actually, as, as more and more investors not only got used to investing remotely, but got comfortable with UK companies, is that at Series A, I would say pre-pandemic, I would have put that number at about 60 to 70% oh, wow. chance. Oh, okay, as high as that. And it's, and it's down to about 20 to 25 percent now yeah and and we haven't seen a series b or later uk limited company have to flip to take in money um in a long time yeah. right so i mean I, I don't i'd put that at virtually zero but at the early stage you know to, to go to your point look to to some extent it's it's simply friction it's it's simply that that the companies are from the u.s investor standpoint frankly too fungible 
mm-hmm. at that stage mm-hmm. to to you know go out and find UK counsel and you know understand what are my rights as an investor in a you know in a UK company because again Delaware reduces friction in the respect that US VCs know exactly what their rights and obligations are under Delaware law mm-hmm. and anytime they invest outside of Delaware they have to go and try to figure it out and the earlier you are and and the more you know, fungible you are, the less interested the US VC is going to be to do that. that. That is one consideration. However, there are a few other considerations. For example, there are certainly some US funds um, in that in their fund documents prohibit the fund from investing into companies yeah. based outside of the United States. Sure, sure. And we always tell U- UK European companies we work with, that's not negotiable, right? I mean, if the VC has that restriction contractually in their documents, then you as the company need to decide. Because they'll only have been that. able to raise from the LPs based on having that restriction. Right. In now, yeah. in fairness, that is not that common in the, in, in the United States, but it, there are still cert- certain funds that have that. Also, you know, in, in, in fairness, there is some benefit and I don't want to oversell this. I'm going to preface this, right? I don't want to oversell this. However, there is some moderate benefit when you are hiring U.S. employees to provide the options to those employees mm. out of a Delaware parent company as opposed to a U- U.K. limited. In other words, there's, there's a, it's a little bit more tax beneficial yeah. to the employee. On the other hand, I mean, I, I can't tell you the, the number of U.K. limited companies that we work with who – very easily go out and hire in the U.S. and provide options to U.S. employees. To the extent that this becomes an issue, you just simply gross them up a little bit and provide them a little bit more in 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 options. But I'll tell I'll tell you the bottom line takeaway that we always tell 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 companies on the, on the Delaware flip, which is the following: at the end of the day, don't worry about it. Okay, <laughs> here's what I mean by that. Right, wait until you go out and start talking to U.S. investors. And if U.S. investors who you're interested in, you are interested in, start saying to you, you seem like a pretty interesting company, but I'm not, I'm a little bit hesitant to invest in a U.K. limited company, then you say back to them, you say, great. If that's the last gating item for you, then we can talk about that, about flipping into Delaware, and we could build it into the term sheet. Yeah. Right, because that protects both sides. If yeah, you build so you it only into the do the shape. you only do the flip if the investment comes through, rather than if you yeah. know that the money is yeah. going to come to yeah. fund the flip, and that protects both sides, protects the VC, and that they never have to deal with the limited because the flip completes first, then the financing docs come in, and the money comes into the ink, the the corporation. Mm-hmm. But it also protects the company is that they don't commit to spending the money because it can be expensive, especially if you have SEIS or EIS mm. and you need to save that SEIS, EIS treatment for earlier stage investors, which, by the way, you can do. Mm-hmm. You can save it. Mm-hmm. But it's a complicated transaction. Mm-hmm. You don't commit to that unless you know that there's going to be an investment there waiting for you. You mentioned this other issue, uh, and, and I'm really glad you did because – one of the questions is how do you actually measure impact, right? Because yeah. you recently published yourself an article citing 50 impact metrics that early yes. stage founders could track, but yes. changes in many of those metrics, right? Like poverty, literacy, crime rates, civic engagement, et cetera, can only yeah. be seen over the longer time frame. Um, yeah. So how do you know if the well, you're per, investing per, in- Perhaps, that, I mean, I do see, generally, I think you're correct in that, but that's, that's perhaps, I mean, there. Sure. So uh, one more time, the question, the question. Yeah. So the, I guess the question is like, how do you, I mean, you, you're kind of, you started answering the question. How do you know if the startups you're investing in are actually achieving that real change or, or, or change at a pace? Uh, yes. Enough, right? This, this goes into the realm of claims. Mm-hmm. So this is more of a legal question, actually. Interesting. Um, 
I, I don't make any claims around impact. And that that goes against the logic. It, it seems as though I should be, right? It seems as though I should be claiming that our portfolio has reduced X number of CO2 tons, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I want to remind you that we're a pre-seed fund. Hmm. And like you said yourself, we're backing innovation. We're hmm. backing the potential. Um, nine times out of 10, what would it matter what they measure? They can pivot 10 times and they will. <laughs> In fact, I actually have to say, frankly, that most of the time we're backing teams that are driven by some greater purpose. Sure. And had you know, I don't want to get into how you I would measure that. I mean, in fact, I try to, but it's quite difficult. Um, but the 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 bet the real bet is can this team with a great vision uh and a, a passion for what they're building achieve some semblance of impact that sounds like what they aim to 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 back if i were a government regulator and and i wanted to set up a system to make sure that the dollars were going to a measurable achievable impact at pre-seed i'd probably quit my job yeah. <laughs> because because if you if you understand that um any clause you put on founders any restriction you put on fund managers any um any system that you try to standardize be it B Corp or be it the United Nations Global Reporting Initiative, et cetera, et cetera, can create massive, massive inefficiencies with a company that has three three months of runway. Yeah, so the constraints essentially will end up killing the business rather than yeah. empowering the business to do what it I needs mean, to do. I mean, frankly, the only impact that I feel I could measure or manage is, is just do I help create an environment where I help catalyze, basically, and the word catalyze is the word for it. Um, so having said all of that, back to the idea of claims. So in the in the EU, there's this SFDR, SFDR program. It's the S Sustainable Finance um, Disclosure Requirements. I believe that's the, the term for it. And getting a call here, just a moment. Um, yeah, they set up this program in the in EU that basically puts the onus of claims onto the fund manager. Oh, wow. And and I think that that is a mistake. And I think that in a in a country in a place where you have massive subsidies for for risk taking, um, i.e., backing fund managers through through things like government subsidies or something like that, in that exaggerated world, that could make some sense. If, for example, the uh, the U.S. government wanted to give me a hundred million dollars to catalyze my early stage fund. Okay, I'll hire some people and and I'll and I'll uh, pay for each of my startups to go through training programs, and we can have a retreat camp and we can all sit down and talk about impact and we can, you know, whatever it is, set it up, get it to go. I mean, essentially, it's incentivizing the wrong behavior, right? Well, well, I didn't say that, but I, I was being sarcastic to some <laughs> But just to, just to put the this this, this exaggeration to a point. Yeah. Um, in the world of high risk, when it's ultra speculative and there are 5 million directions the founders can go, um, I personally believe that as a fund manager, I would be wasting my founder's time to say, you need to be doing it this way. You need to report it this way. Um, you know, For the first year or two, they should be experimenting, in my opinion. Uh, that's my opinion. I think that the, uh, the ability to experiment and grow and change and pivot is an exercise in trust that a lot of people are not comfortable with because again, we don't know how to measure trust. It is just a word. 
And that that reconciliation of the personal aspect of impact and building trust with the founding teams and literally just being here to support them and defend them, by the way, mm. not making claims for them, but just defending their pursuits and experimentations and their ability to grow into something that can be a massive financial success. That's my only goal. And I tell my LPs this, um, and it gets me into trouble with some who think that I should be measuring and monitoring an impact in a way that that uh, sh- you know should should be a standard or something. I, I simply don't care. Uh, my job is to back innovation. 